The term neural network is almost a buzzword now in artificial intelligence, uh, despite the fact that it was sort of looked down upon during certain periods of artificial intelligence's development. Despite all that, most of us in the general educated public are not exactly familiar with what a neural network is, how it works, and why we'd create one. Today we get a little bit of uh, insight into a concise perspective on what a neural network is from Dr. Stephen Thaler, uh, who is uh, CEO and founder of Imagination Engines, Inc., an AI researcher, and he speaks to us as to how neural networks could potentially and do, in some instances, create what we would refer to as creativity and his perspective as to how a neural net tuned to be creative at a certain degree could eventually emerge with consciousness and his perspective on the interconnectedness between the two. Certainly a fascinating interview, so without further ado, we'll jump right in. So, Dr. Thaler, you know, we're going to be speaking about creative machines. Um, the constituent that you might you had mentioned might be uh, worth talking about and understanding. Before we talk about creative machines is neural networks. Um, some of us are familiar with, you know, the term a neural net or a neural network. Uh, I, I think from what I've uh, spoken of with other AI experts, uh, the term seems to be more than uh, or more and more popular today. I know the approach was sort of... Um, shuffled under the rug for a bit and now is coming back. What is a neural network in, in terms of artificial intelligence? Well, I think that the audience is familiar with the concept of a computer program or an algorithm. Mm -hmm. uh, neural networks are not that. Uh, they are simply collections of cells or switches that can switch either on or off, and they are connected by so-called connection weights, synaptic connections, I may slip and interchange those terms quite a bit. But these neural systems build models of whatever worlds they are exposed to. And they do that by, first of all, connecting up the switches, the neurons, if you will, yep. into colonies that uh, essentially are token representations of things in the external world. So if you live in the world of the farm, uh, your neural networks are building models of horses, pigs, cows, <laughs> chickens, yes. and so forth. And after you've built up these token representations of the world, these colonies begin to link up to mimic the spatio-temporal relationships between them. In other words, the causalities. Um, you know, what excludes what, what uh, tends to include what, uh, how does something... Uh, uh, abstractly affect another, and it's all achieved with these so-called connection weights. Uh, essentially, in the brain, uh, the uh, the, uh, synap the uh, synaptic clefts, uh, the post-synaptic uh, uh, terminals have various uh, channels that can be plugged or unplugged, and that is way the way that nature, neurobiology, achieves those connection weights. But in digital computers, those weights are emulated by double precision numbers, typically. So the brain essentially ignore the neurons, which I typically do in academic discussions. Uh, the brain consists of connections. That's why it's called connectionism. So essentially a neural network is simply a system of switches that interconnect themselves to create a model of the world they are exposed to, in token representations of that world, and the relationships between those uh, different entities or activities it encounters therein. Got it. And now quickly before we move along, um, 
That is a, uh, a reasonably better conceptual understanding than I had even had uh, before the call. Uh, being unschooled formally in the domain of artificial intelligence, being more of a psychology fellow myself, um, in terms of how these neural networks, these these uh, this network of switches, um, comes to experience the world and then model the world, how how is this done? I suppose you know maybe it's exposed to a number of pictures of something. Maybe maybe it, it has other kinds of sensors. Um, how is this modeling? You know, maybe maybe a computer is sending in the pictures, and there isn't even a camera in any way, shape, or form. Um, how is the system sort of modeling the world in which in which it's it's in? How does that process go about uh, in, in within a neural network? Are we getting down to the nuts and bolts uh, adjustments of connection weights, or are we talking about procedural issues? Uh, maybe just kind of an, an, an overview of how that modeling occurs. So probably nothing that would require a ton of math uh, within the moment here, but. Um, it, how, how you know maybe maybe an example I think would help you know a neural network that models its surroundings. You mentioned a farm. I don't know if there is a good example of a neural network in a farm. Maybe you have an example of a, a neural network being applied in a particular environment. Well, it's just a colorful example I'm using. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's an example. Uh, procedurally, um, the brain of the farmer, so to speak, on the farm uh, might uh, have uh, visual inputs. Maybe the the signals from. Uh, the, the million pixel pattern coming off the retinal ganglia of his eyes and uh, you know going to the visual cortex. Uh, but the output of this network could be perhaps the sounds these animals are making. So you, know, you, you see the image of a horse, uh, the neural network does, and essentially that propagates through, tries to now mock up the sound of that animal. So if it's a horse, it would be whinnying, uh, so uh, essentially, the weights are adjusted so as to achieve that so-called mapping. So horse image in, Winnie coming out. Uh, image of chicken coming in, sound of chicken uh, coming out of the network. And the way those weight adjustments are typically made, uh, there are um, sundry different variations on the technique, but basically it takes the form of the the probability of any two neurons activating together. If they are co-activating, then they tend to build a strong connection between them, an excitatory connection. If there is uh, probably a decorrelation or anti-correlation, it tends to build a negative connection strength between them. Got so it. I won't get into all the different approaches to you, training a neural network, a neural network yeah. but essentially there are simple algorithms um, that basically depend upon the co-activation of adjacent neurons. So after repeated exposures of the images of animals and their sounds, they become wired together. And we then obtain uh, a, a predictive kind of network. You see this, here's what it's going to sound like and so forth. Got it. Okay, okay. But, but you can generalize that. We're dealing with pattern-based computing. And arguably, everything in the world can be described in terms of patterns. If not, just bluntly saying it is all patterns. So it doesn't really make much difference, uh, you know, whether we're you know detecting mines in the ocean using a neural network. Uh, here's the the raw acoustic uh, return from sonar, and uh, here's you know what the uh, the minefield looks like at the output. It's all pattern-based. Got it. All based upon switches, connections, and 
patterns. And now you'd mentioned, you know, interesting enough to use the farm. I know that was just an arbitrary example. Um, there's recently been a slew of, of relatively humorous but still interesting pictures from um, one of Google's uh, neural networks there, from what I understand, where this this machine that's been trained to recognize images is shown relatively arbitrary images and tries to make sense of what is, is in those images. Now, it, it seems pretty evident that this machine was trained to identify plants and animals, particularly dogs and as well as cats, um, and, and, and some kinds of buildings, a lot of pagodas for whatever odd reason. And, and so it's, it's imposing, when it's shown these pictures, it's sort of drawing its own, and you know, the, the funny quotes on the blogs are the, you know, this is Google's inception, you know, the, the artificial intelligence sort of dreaming here. Um, that it's it's sort of Im imposing what it knows into this image. Is that a neural network at work aiming to make sense of stimuli in a way that it's used to replicating these kinds of images, and so that's what it's seeing when it's when it's looking at uh, the landscape or what have you? Dan, I'm going to be a little bit skeptical. Go for it. Um, I would not say that is a neural network. Ah, indeed. Okay. Go, go. So um, I think some people have described it as such. Give me your take because I'm sure it is uh, it's well informed. Well, what Google is striving for is unsupervised learning, being able to uh, have a neural network look at the Internet and uh, say, well, there's a dog, there's a cat, there's a pagoda, yep. uh, whatever. And the success has been limited, but that makes sense because if we had grown up without any kind of parental supervision, we'd be pointing at swirls and say, look at the nice kitty. Uh, there had to be some supervised learning in which the parent was saying, Oh, no, Dan. That That's was not a, a squirrel yep. and not a cat. So yep. probably about 30 to 40% of the way, it's unsupervised learning. The world is divided up into its its repeating themes, and oftentimes you get it wrong. So it's, it's not a kid's fault. It's just that you know he's, he's at the mercy of generations of uh, biologists who have done uh, the, the classification of uh, the animal and plant world. Yes, yes, okay. Time. So, in a way, that might be wrong, too. I mean, beavers are supposed to be more related to whales than yeah. anything else, if you look at it from a genetic angle. But getting back to the dreaming aspect, uh, they had some neural networks left over that uh, could say, okay, well, uh, let's activate into a dog head or you know, a pagoda, whatever. Yep. And uh, you know, a lot of people have done that. And what they're doing is detecting polygons in the scene. And the impressive part, and <laughs> a lot of people have done this too, is basically saying, let's go ahead and wrap fill the polygon with the dog head, for instance. Yep. And you see a lot of squished dog heads, a lot of uh, sickening sights. I'm an animal advocate. <laughs> yes, but, yes, a very, very uh, odd-looking that, images. That's what's happening. It's simply identifying what it it might be, uh, or it might be just arbitrarily, you know, tagging a neural network, generate a, a dog head, fill it in. <coughs> so nice wrapping algorithms to fill up polygons, but it's not dreaming. Um, and, you know, we need to really talk about creativity machines uh, before we get into that. Um, Got it. Okay. So neural networks are, are not doing that. Uh, possibly cascades, hierarchical cascades of but that's not dreaming. I can tell you about dreaming, and 
Okay, yeah. So, so we'll move. We can move a little bit into creativity. Would, would you call that? Would you call that a neural net? So, would, whatever had created said images, and anybody listening in right now, you can go ahead and Google, uh, you know, Google Inception or you know, Google Google AI dreaming is at least what some people had said. You know, that's not the proper term. It sounds like, but um, do you was it was it in fact a neural network that um, that had produced said images, some said permutations of images, or well, it's using an associative memory. It's, it's basically getting a clue about the shape and then filling in uh, missing information or uh, partial information. Yep. Nothing new about that, but you know, it's, they've got the resources, the people, and so forth to build those algorithms. They sure do. But, uh, it's it's not dreaming. Uh, it's basically misinterpreting. No, no, I think I think it's just a silly analogy to let you know relatively uneducated folks get a grasp of what the heck's going on. Hopefully, I don't think whoever wrote the article was like, well, scientifically, this matches up. They just kind of made a, made a silly analogy, probably didn't intend to offend you or, or anybody else. But, but, uh, but I, I know what you mean. It's not, it's not inherently dreaming. But technically, would it have been, there was some kind of a neural network that was used to looking for dogs, basically, that they slammed a bunch of other pictures through? Yeah. Got it. Okay, all right. So uh, and, and That's very old, but essentially they've scaled it up. Yeah. Uh, Yep, scaled, and, and they, not, not all journalists are as uh, uh, strongly background as you are. Well, I mean, I don't know how strong my background is either. I like to come from a pretty agnostic place and, and just ask questions and critique the heck out of myself. Again, we have way, way too many kinds of PhDs on the show for me to look smart in front of all of them, but I think hopefully I pick up a little something every, every now and again and at least strive to be as objective as I can in my own given conceptions. Now, with that being mentioned, um, creative computing, we've had some great folks on in that uh, domain, of course, that's that's been your realm of focus for quite some time. Um, what does it take to make a neural network creative? Well, a, maybe we should clarify the term, but then B, how do we go about doing that? Well, I mean, the question boils down to how do you make a neural network generate an activation pattern it never has done before? In other words, a novel pattern. Yes. You've heard that term used before in another interview from what I was able to glean. But uh, the way to do that stems back to what my uh, hobby activity was back in the mid-70s when I was playing with rudimentary neural networks. Actually, remember, I was, a, uh, I was a budding theoretical physicist at that point, and I was taking lattice models, things like ferromagnets and uh, ferroelectric materials, and essentially freezing in memories. You can imagine that, you know, freezing the domains of a paramagnet to represent a smiley face. And then what I would do is raise the computational temperature. Everyone knows that, you know, when you heat up a magnet, it loses its uh, uh, magnetization. And what I discovered was that when I raised the temperature, um, the spins of these uh, simulated atoms would begin to, uh, how should I say, uh, diminish in their interaction with so the coherence was lost and you would produce other kinds of faces what looked like faces so it's like you know I'm looking at uh, like a a 64 by 64 uh, grid of um, atoms in spin alignment in the face and then suddenly they begin to dissolve as we would heat up this simulated crystal lattice and what I would uh, realizes, well, that looks like a face, too. It's a different kind of face. And another. But it's more like looking at the man on the moon or that noisy train feature on Mars everyone thought was, 
you know, a, um, an anthropomorphic form. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't. And then the, the clue came when I, you know, basically shift the angle with which I was looking. Oh, that looks like nonsense. So what I found was that there was perception getting involved. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So it wasn't creating more faces. It was just you saying, oh, that still looks like a face. It's making a different face. But really, this is sort of, again, your, your perception. Right. But you see, during that time period, there was quite a lot of work going on in the area of building perceptrons, you know, beginning in, you know, like the mid-50s um, and uh, continuing into the 70s and 80s. And uh, they were no longer lattice models, but uh, more akin to the, the multiple layers and cortex of, of neurons. Yep. So you could train mappings that were very highly nonlinear. And I discovered that by raising the perturbation level, I can get into that in a moment, in uh, the connection strengths between those neurons, that we'd reach a point at which the network was no longer generating memories, but was beginning to generate mild um, variations, false memories, if you will. Yep. And many of those turn out to be good ideas. And as you'd expect, as you turn up this perturbation process even more, the network begins to produce gobble decoding. Yeah. Which makes sense. It's garbage in, garbage out. But the amazing thing is the transition between memory generation at low noise levels and uh, the high levels, which are generating nonsense. In the intermediate regime, you're creating things that are potential things from the original conceptual space. So going back to the face example, you could have shown in faces as you introduce low levels of noise to those synaptic, synaptic connections. It generates intact memories. At extreme levels of perturbation, the network generates noise or nonsense. Got it. But there is a thin skin on the original conceptual space at just the right, at the correctly tuned level of synaptic perturbation where the network starts to generate could-be things from the original conceptual space. And all of this, this discussion extends also to uh, complex neural systems when you have many uh, neural networks conspiring together to create ideas. Because guess what? They're interconnected by synaptic connections also. So, you know, you, you may have, uh, you know, the wheel... Uh, neural module activating into images of wheels uh, and then everything fades to black and then you might uh, be generating uh, axles uh, and then you might have another module activating. But it may turn out that uh, through noise they bond together. In other words, a synaptic channel develops between all three modules so you've got uh, wheel, axle, box and suddenly another network might say, aha, wheel vehicle or car and now you have invention but the whole concept of the creativity machine depends upon this idea of gently ramping up the synaptic perturbation level between neurons and maybe I need to digress a little bit uh, to explain what I mean by uh, synaptic perturbation. Yeah, yeah, just give a quick, a quick debrief well, I mean, on that if one. if you've got two neurons, essentially there's a connection channel between them. Yep. Of course, any neurons receiving, you know, many others in the brain, about, you know, 10,000 other uh, different neurons are feeding it. But those can be represented on computers as double precision numbers. 
So it might turn out accidentally the connection weight has a value of 1 with uh, 14 zeros after it. Uh, but when you perturb it momentarily, I'm talking about transient perturbation, uh, by 5% or so, uh, the connection weight can become 1.05 or 0 0.95, either one. Yep. But essentially that acts as both a disturbance that propagates through the network as well as a way of softening the constraints that are contained in the network. And by constraints, it says, well, this thing can happen, but this thing can't happen. Yep. Or these things happen together. That uh, when you begin to perturb, you start creating things that <laughs> didn't exist in the direct experience of the network, but yes. are now are being spontaneously synthesized. Indeed. Okay, got it. Now, now so the, the handle, if you, if you can see, on sure. creativity is simply one factor. It's a scalar metric. It's essentially the level of synaptic noise within the network. Understood. And you reach a, a glory regime, a critical point, in which the network is now beginning to generate mildly false memories or confabulations. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you simply take another network, this is more traditional neural networks, a perceptron that's trained to map from the idea to some figure of merit, you can see where you've got, uh, I mean, this is a bare bones creativity machine, generating new ideas that are then filtered out, that can be used in real time or archived uh, for later perusal. And um, you know, to make things even more efficient, you can use the outputs of that network in the form of maybe the distance from some target um, behavior yep. and use that metric to modulate that synaptic noise. And the result is that if the system does not see a good idea in you know, maybe 100, 300 milliseconds, what it can do is start to ramp up the noise to make the thinking more twisted inside the noisy neural network, huh. which, I, which I call an imagitron. So out of frustration, the network is basically turning up the synaptic perturbation level of the noise until it's satisfied. And, and this, is, this is curious. So I'm, I'm interested, and in, we might not get to other bigger, grander topics in this Call, but I would like to, to go a little bit deeper on this one because it's, it's a fascinating topic. You know, we had talked a little bit before about what Google was up to, and, and you had mentioned, you know, it's, uh, you know, not super duper fancy, but they're just doing it at a bigger level. You know, um, some people might might think, and again, I wouldn't know any better uh, myself per se to know one way or the other, but some people might say, man, you know, Google, this Google uh, machine can stare at this landscape and it finds a, a tree that it turns into like a half slug, half dog with, with that still has legs somehow. Um, you know, that, that thing has never existed and it's never seen a slug dog in its entire life. Um, it, this is a, a relatively creative uh, output from this machine because it's made a slug dog. Now, it sounds like maybe you would say, oh, by golly, that's nothing like creativity, or, or maybe you would think that it is. Um, what is what is your take on that, and and, and if, if it's not, then, you know, what would be? Uh, a creativity machine, essentially, with the right level of noise, is basically, you know, we can start at uh, lucid, um, wide-awake cognition. Yep. Uh, essentially, we're looking at the world. That serves as an I.O. interrupt to uh, the neural system that says, oh, there's a tree, processes through, and, you know, essentially it resonates with the memories inside the network, and another network says, ah, 
Um, that's not a boring. That, I've seen that before. That's a tree. Yep. Um, however, in a creativity machine, you can show it absolutely nothing. And what happens is the noise is misinterpreted internally within the network. It's not being given any kind of raw material. Yep, like a, like a landscape picture right, or whatever. Like have a you. landscape or something like that. It's an internal genesis completely. Got it. Okay, okay. Now, so, I mean, we don't have to, we don't, we don't wait to look and looking at the environment for a solution to a problem. Uh, you know, look at all the toothbrushes around the how those work. Uh, you know, look at uh, you know, different kinds of, uh, uh, trying to think of another example, uh, drawing from a commercial uh, project, uh, car designs. Or well, that's a good car, that's a good car. But it's not really designing a new car, and what it does is producing a ridiculous car. I mean, are you going to drive around town with a, a dog head uh, on the hood? And No, 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 you, pr it, you it, probably it, wouldn't. It, it does nothing that's practical. However, one that can accelerate from zero to sixty, you know, in uh, you know, some very small time three period, you know, three seconds, and uh, do a sixty to zero deceleration in uh, two seconds. Uh, those are the kinds of things you're looking for, as, as opposed to uh, just being grossed out. <laughs> got it. Got it. Well, yeah, and, and, and you and know. Furthermore, furthermore, there's a collaboration going on because you've got one network which is now injecting more or less noise into the other until it arrives at a useful solution. Got and by the way, I do have uh, uh, some images from last year that are more coherent dreams from a neural network. Oh, cool. Actually, I'd, I'd be somewhat interested in those for the article um, if they are shareable. Um, I can send you... The problem is I've spidered the Internet, so I don't know if somebody's going to raise a fuss if they see a little piece of their image. <laughs> well, I, I, I can, I can show you privately. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. Maybe that would be cool enough, but uh, no, that, that is, that is interesting. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, it's, it's cool to know that those other folks cracking that particular, uh, nut as well. Um, just to, to kind of round up this creativity idea as we close out here, you know, we're making a distinction between, uh, what was going on at Google and sort of the, the deeper realm of creativity that you're kind of referring to and maybe shooting for. Um, are there examples in today's world, in your own work or otherwise, of a more apt example of what we're referring to here as creativity than that, uh, you know, uh, slug dog uh, images that they had done, which I, I thought was relatively interesting, um, but, but again, not your definition of creativity. In your own work or otherwise, you know, generating ideas with maybe less stimuli or whatever the case may be, um, are there other AI creativity examples that might sort of put a finger on the point of, of sort of where you're going with what creativity is and what it could be uh, within AI. Well, uh, 95, I spent a lot of time in your um, part of the woods. Up, up here in the old Cambridge area? Cambridge area, working for Razorblade Company. Oh, okay. Yep, yep, yep. You might be aware of. Uh, yep, but, uh, they got a pretty big, pretty big building. was to uh, look at raw data and to absorb that into one of my neural systems and invent a new toothbrush. And, huh. uh, you know, I won't mention names, but I uh, had major input into designing uh, a very uh, well-known toothbrush. Cool. Uh, that you can probably see in any corner uh, drugstore. Uh, Got it. Okay, after, so, so this is I a... Mean, after that, yeah. the, 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 the projects became more uh, proprietary, uh, you know, basically developing anti-counterfeiting schemes in a certain part of the world. Um, 
working um, a lot of uh, projects in material synthesis, um, inventing new materials harder than diamond potentially, uh, new ultra hard materials, new superconductors, and so forth. Um, and of course, that resulted in an immense database. I think about a half million new uh, chemical compounds and systems. Uh, and of course, the uh, the Physicists and chemists involved felt a little bit intimidated. They don't want to uh, verify the accidental discoveries. It's another curious. Well, you know, there's there's a there's yeah there's egos involved here uh, across the board. Uh, academics and inventors and human beings, I guess. Right. I'm not going to point the finger at any kind of person, but uh, such is life. Um, so so just to to kind of nail it for the folks at home, um, what you're referring to with respect to creating the toothbrush or or creating uh, different kind of material science um, synthesis uh, is that you are running these materials, maybe their properties or these models of toothbrushes, maybe their properties uh, into this machine and aiming to come up with a toothbrush that was blank um, and you know fill in whatever criteria you were looking for and and you had done that by adding sort of some semblance of perturbation to these trained networks to sort of generate the you uh, sometimes useless but sometimes useful perturbations of uh, toothbrush variations or of um, uh, you know uh, uh, material science kind of combinations of, of hardened materials or, or what have you am I, am I uh, hearing you correctly just in terms of kind of clarifying it for the for the people tuned in well I mean in those cases I was feeding information or rather the respective companies were, were giving me their yep. uh, data and uh, the perturbations were resulting in new confabulated designs that were then selected by a watching uh, computational critic, in this case, a neural network. Uh, yeah. We can eliminate the middleman and my creative robots uh, to do that all automatically using uh, sensors, cameras, uh, actuators of various kinds. So uh, that's probably the most impressive projects I've done with the military in building improvisational robots that uh, can escape their programming to do things in reaction to, uh, uh, how should I say, unexpected scenarios in the environment. Indeed, and okay. Interestingly, that's not uh, used well <laughs> at this, it's not used widely at this point, simply because uh, there's resistance to uh, having totally autonomous uh, battlefield uh, uh, weapons. There, 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 certainly, there certainly are, and that, that would be a talk uh, unto itself. I realize we went a little bit over our normal time frames today, Dr. Thaler, but I, I certainly appreciate you shedding some light on the notion of creativity as well as informing us a little bit more as to what a neural net actually is and, and what that implies. So hopefully this is decent homework for the folks at home. Some people might want to look up uh, Dr. Thaler if you do, you know, imagination uh, uh, machines and, and whatnot. I mean, he's findable all, all over Google. Dr. Thaler, I sincerely... Can I add one yep. more point? Yeah, go for it. I mean, we were going to talk a little bit about consciousness but sure. the bottom line is uh, that consciousness is basically that which is invented oh. by creativity machines in the brain. Ah, yes, okay. That was the point that, yes, I wasn't going to go into consciousness because I figured it was going to be its own 20-minute talk. But um, to summarize the idea again, what did you just mention? That consciousness is that which is consciousness invented? Consciousness is an illusion. It's an invention by the brain about itself. So the reality is what you see when you look at a functional MRI. You know, the splotches of uh, neural activation going on, yep. uh, purely physical. But the subjective part is invented by creativity machines. 
And it's sort of like, you know, looking at the, the tree and imagining all sorts of things, uh, <laughs> not the dogs and uh, the, slugs. Know, the, yeah. the pagodas, but uh, essentially other potential configurations of the tree, you know, a couple of lovers uh, embracing under it or a bird landing in a branch, realistic thing. But essentially creativity machines in the brain are looking out at overall cortical activity and saying, wow, that's fantastic. Huh, so, so we're here yeah. because we like what we see. Yeah. We like the invented interpretation. Otherwise, we're prone to pointing shotguns at our heads and walking off cliffs. So yeah, yeah, Darwin, we're, yep, yep. Darwin did his job, and it's basically creativity machines. And that is the ultimate invention uh, I, because uh, the creativity machines now have a way of determining their own trajectory, directions, yeah. their own free will. And that's essential to solving problems. Yes, good, good old-fashioned volition. So, okay, so, so right. your own hypothesis on, uh, on uh, in this bonus chapter of this extra-long interview <laughs> um, is, uh, is that um, the brain is performing, to some degree, what you had already referred to in the creativity machine analogy, uh, at a scale to which it's, it's metacognating that level of sort of awareness uh, for an internal experience to be the case that allows us to control actions in this more volitional way because we're experiencing this this lens over our world that is sort of an awareness and that uh, possibly through creativity machines at, at a certain level and to a certain degree of abstraction, we'd be able to create that synthetically uh, as well. Right, and it can develop all the other cognitive abilities we would need on top of that. Got it. Okay, and I know a lot of folks have different takes on consciousness and machinery and what consciousness is, and there's all those arguments about that, but it's interesting to hear uh, your take on that as well. So creativity, uh, in, in your eyes, sort of leads us in the direction of what, what we consider to be sentience and awareness eventually. Right, and there's a new uh, technology on its way where we've extended the technology to the trillion neuron mark. Remember, the brain is only 100 billion neurons. Yeah. So we've used, uh, I've gone back to my old discipline of physics and have come up with a way of bypassing computers to something that is transhuman. Well, man, if, uh, if, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you're the first one to get there, I'll be on an airplane pretty swiftly, my good sir. And I, I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm glad that we got the time for the interview today and that we got to cover the one topic I thought we wouldn't because I wanted to be careful on time, but we didn't go over my own time into the next interview, and we still were able to pack it in, so that is fantastic. Dr. Stephen Thaler, thank you again so much for being here on the show. Dan, it's been a pleasure. Call back again. And that wraps up this episode on the Tech Emergence Podcast. Thanks for being here, and remember to subscribe on iTunes to stay on top of the latest news breaks, researcher perspectives, and entrepreneur interviews in artificial intelligence, neurotechnology, and more. And we want to hear from you as well, so be sure to leave a review on iTunes, which are always appreciated, or contact us directly at info at techemergence.com. And remember, all of our entrepreneur interviews and interviews with top researchers from around the world, from Stanford to Oxford and beyond, can be found right on our main site at techemergence.com. Remember to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. So with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Figella signing off, and I'll see you next week.